0: The Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future.
1: Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Douglas Borthwick, Chief Business Officer at New York-based INX Limited, which runs a cryptocurrency trading platform, a digital asset broker dealing business, an interdealer broker, and a blockchain-based ATS for trading security tokens. IonX is proving true to its last, raising money to fund its activities not by a classic IPO, but by a security token IPO. Douglas, thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you very much for having me. Now,
1: as I just said a minute ago, IonX has raised $85 million, most of it via a full SEC-registered security token offering on an Ethereum blockchain at $0.90 cents a token last summer, as opposed to going down the route which so many other businesses have done, Reg D or Reg S. What was the logic? What was the advantage of going for full registration?
0: Well, we've been looking at security tokens for a number of years. And we realized that it was a very small market. Small market because only really accredited investors were trading in it or were involved in it. Maybe 20,000 at that globally. And you know, Nike is never gonna move onto the blockchain if it's only for accredited investors. And we wanted to look at the bigger picture. And we had to come up with a avenue towards making security tokens available to everybody to retail institutions, accredited investors globally. And the only way you can really do that is through a full prospectus offering, which had never been attempted before. So we spent 950 days with the SEC to create a new asset class that could be traded by everyone. And we believe that now we've created this, it's now a roadmap for all other companies that want to IPO in the blockchain or do things on the blockchain, not just as a private company, which is where Reg D Reg S come in, but as a full public reporting company which is where a full prospectus of an F1 or S1 nature comes in. So we wanted to be a full reporting company. We wanted to have input from retail and institutions and accredited investors from all around the world. And in the end, we ended up with 7,250 holders of our security from 74 countries. And I think with an average age of 42. And I think it, what it really shows is that we managed to you know, essentially get what we wanted out of this. And now we're talking to many, many companies that are going through the very similar process.
1: I think you just said it was 950 days. So how difficult was it uh, to do this? You, you've explained the advantages very clearly, but doing this fully public issue, you had to educate regulators, you had to invest a lot of time, and probably a lot of money
0: as well. How difficult was it? Well, I think it was very difficult because the first time we went to them, they sort of laughed us off and said, look, I don't think so. We then came back with Ernst Young and MWE, a law firm in New York, and worked with them. And they said, okay, well, you know, well, we, we can't promise you anything, but you can certainly apply and we'll see where it goes. So it was a very open ended process with a lot of legal bills spent on a monthly basis with no end in sight. But we wanted to really show something and prove something that it could be done. And once done, it was going to open up the floodgates.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But we had to come up with the definitions for pretty much everything in our prospectus you know a a hard wallet or soft wallet had never been defined in a prospectus before what is the ethereum blockchain what is a smart contract what's erc 1404 versus erc 20. so many different concepts and ideas that had never been tackled in a prospectus before and so never been ruled on or discussed by any regulator and you know we had to go through multiple different committees at the sec in order for everyone to sign off on it so that's why it took a long time. It took a long time because this is the first ever prospectus that hadn't been cut and paste in a very, very long time.
1: Well, you have to Do a lot of the government's work for it by the sound of it would have been quite handy to have a, a token piece of legislation, wouldn't it? I um, mean, one other interesting thing about the uh, about the offering was that investors could subscribe using cryptos. They could use Bitcoin or Ether. They could use the stablecoin USDC, as well as subscribing fiat currency. Uh, once you'd passed a threshold, I think it was $7.5 million. So what in the end was the balance between uh, fiat and
0: cryptocurrency subscriptions? You know, as, as you note, it was the first ever SEC registered security and an IPO to accept cryptocurrency. Now, everyone always says that cryptocurrency won't be real until you can pay your taxes with it. Well, now you can use it to buy an IPO that's registered with the SEC. That's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Now at the first seven and a half million had to be raised via dollar wires. And that was sort of like a, you know, an agreement that we had with the SEC. After that, we then started accepting, as you said, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and USDC. And the nice thing there is when someone sends you Bitcoin or Ethereum, it's an instant transfer. The money comes in immediately. I don't have the numbers in front of me. I'm guessing probably around 30% of all of the cash that we ended up raising came from Bitcoin, Ethereum, or USDC. It's just so much simpler to send money that way than it is to do a wire transfer. And a wire transfer... You know, for folks around the world, it's sort of like you pick up Revolut or you go into your bank and you have to then send the money. And sometimes the bank says, I'm not sending money there. I don't know who it is. Whereas with, you know, so with crypto, you can send it immediately. It arrives. We know exactly who sent it. It's very, very clean.
1: Apart from setting that threshold, did the SEC have any other views on cryptocurrency subscriptions, other constraints they set? or rules Well, this wasn't, a
0: constraint, this wasn't a constraint that they set. Rather it was a constraint that we put in, in that we wanted to, to show it's sort of when you do an IPO in general, there's always sort of a minimum amount that has to be raised. And that goes into escrow before you can start withdrawing from it. So that's where we set that seven and a half million threshold, not necessarily because the SEC told us, but because it's, it's a prudent thing to do when you're doing an IPO. And again, this is the first of its kind. We had no idea. Now, within two days, that seven and a half million was in the door. And then that opened up the escrow and allowed us then to start withdrawing funds to use for purposes of building our company. Um, So I wouldn't say there were a lot of constraints put on the SEC, if any, put on by the SEC. If anything, we had to find a way to weave ourselves through current regulations in such a way that you're dealing with a new asset class, but you still have to keep track of what the old asset class is doing. And a great example would be a transfer agent. When you're dealing on the blockchain, you don't really need a transfer agent. The transfer agent says, this person owns a stock and they've just sold it to this person, right? It's pretty standard for a legacy equity. But on the blockchain, you don't really need that because you can see on etherscan.io, you can go there, look up the INX token and see as they're moving from one whitelisted wallet to another. Mm-hmm. And so you don't need a transfer agent, but the law says you do, so we have a transfer agent. So there's a lot of things It's sort of like, you've got three arms, even though you need two, to fit into the current
1: regulations, we'll come back to that that point about the transfersions a, a bit later on. Just quickly, have you held on to the cryptocurrency, just keeping it as, as as capital to spend on the business, or have you swapped it into fiat currency? Does it make sense?
0: No, no. no we, we and I mean this is in the prospectus, and that as soon as the cash came in, we would then get out of it, liquidate it into fiat, because we're not in the business of speculation regarding cryptocurrency. We we're in the business of building a business. Now, we could have changed that in the prospectus if we'd wanted. In hindsight, that would have been a fantastic thing to do. But then again, that would be a different business that we have, and that's not our business today.
1: Mm-hmm. And the offering, how successful was it in terms of, of reaching your target amount, number of investors that like you mentioned, you know, 2,700 or so? Um, no, 7,250.
0: That's more investors in our security token than all other security tokens in the United States combined. Uh It's the largest ever public offering of a security token ever in existence. The volume on the uh, INX limited token today, on average, is larger than any other security token that exists. Mm -hmm. I think what we've really done is we've proven that if you do, let's say, a Reg A+, which is called a mini IPO, there's limited liquidity because you're only really looking at U.S. investors. If you do a Reg D, there's very limited liquidity, because you're only looking at very wealthy US investors. If you do a Reg S, well, that's a lot of retail international investors, but when you do a full prospectus, it's all of them. And we find the trading in our security token happening overnight in US time zone, on the weekend, and you're not finding that with any other US security. In fact, we're the only registered security that trades 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So I think that's pretty successful.
1: And it's trading at a premium to the 90 cents you launched at?
0: It is, yeah. Right now, I think the last trade was around $2.10. That makes it the second best performing IPO in the United States for 2021. Uh
1: And uh, you hit your target as well, the amount you wanted to raise?
0: Well, I'd say that our target was a moving target. We went out there initially saying we had 130 million tokens to sell, As the token started selling we decided that maybe we don't want to sell as many as as we'd like to Um, and we then held it back because we realized after a while that perhaps the business was growing at a faster pace than the token was priced and obviously once you price an IPO at a certain price it's got to stay there and it's got to be there but as the as the IPO went on and this was an ongoing IPO we could have held it open for 365 days we opened it up on August 20th, I think of 2020, closed it in April of 2021. But over that time, the company was growing at such a pace that after a while it sort of made sense that we, were, we felt like maybe we were perhaps giving away the token and uh, sort of of moving away from it. So we set a date then to end the token offering and to pull the capital inside. But we were also doing other things on our capital stack. We were going through a reverse takeover of a company in, in Canada Um, that was also having a concurrent raise as well on the equity side of our business. And so, you know, we had a lot of money coming in and uh, decided that maybe it was time for us to close the offering.
1: I think I'm right to say these token holders have rights benefits, uh, both in terms of it being a security, but also in terms of it being a kind of utility token. So what are they, they going to get in terms of income generation by the company? And what are they going to get these discounts, which are offered for, for trading on INX? How do they claim those discounts? What are the two benefits they
0: get? Well, what I'll say is that when I talk about the token, there's nothing that I'm saying is financial advice. I'm not licensed in any way whatsoever. And please, whatever I say, do your own research. The INEX token is not an equity token. It gives no equity rights whatsoever, and there are no voting rights. What the INEX token does is it gives the rights to the token holder on a pro rata basis. 40% of our profits would be defined as net operating cash flow on an annual basis a distribution. Let's say we make 100 million in profits. Let's say there's $40 million of that, would then go and be distributed to all the token holders. If there are 100 million token holders and 40 million of profits, then 40 cents would go to each token holder. Now that would go on ad infinitum forever. We can't print any more tokens. And so just based on inflation or based upon our company growing, you would expect over time, that amount that's going out to the token holders to increase if we're a profitable business and, and, and successful and in a very high growth environment. Then again, if we don't grow, nothing happens, then that wouldn't happen. Now, but of the money we raised, we raised about 85 million around there. 40 million was put into a cash fund. And that can't be touched by our company. But if we don't, you know, get the cryptocurrency business trading or we don't do execute on what we're doing, or if we get bought over, that that $40 million would get automatically returned back to the token holders. So they had a limited downside on the back of that. But they also, we also wanted to do something whereby the supply of the INEX token in the market decreases over time. So we added this utility function. Now, you know the BNB token, that's the Binance token. The Binance token can be used on a daily basis to pay for the fees you have on their exchange. We thought that's a great idea, but kind of sounds like a security to us. And so what we decided was, well, let's do that as well. Let's use the INEX token so you can use it whenever you pay your fees. Now, obviously that's that's now become a little more complicated because the INEX token is appreciated. And we understand now that people are probably not willing to use their token to pay for a fee because that's a tax event. Unlike with the BNB token, that's sort of a utility token. Um, the INEX token is a security and you wouldn't really sell Nike when it's in the money a lot. So in order to pay, let's say your for, your, for a pair of shoes, And so we've had a rethink of how exactly we'll use that utility site. So instead, we're giving everyone a huge trading fee discount on our platform. And we're looking at some very exciting things that we'll be doing whereby the supply will decrease over time, but we haven't announced those yet.
1: If I wanted to sell my token, where can I sell it?
0: You would go to inx.co or securities.inx.co. And there we have our ATS. The... Uh, The the UI, the way you look at the user interface, is really something that we inherited from Open Finance. This is a broker-dealer in ATS that we purchased and renamed INX Securities. Um, It should be updated in the next couple of months uh, to look very similar and have a very similar feel to the crypto trading platform that we have. But right now, it's a way for you to have execution abilities, a way for you to have liquidity, uh, to let token holders trade if they want to. And we'll be adding a lot of tokens to this over the, uh, the next couple of months.
1: Mm-hmm. Now You've touched on this. Uh, you've bought a, a, a regulated broker dealing business. That's open finance. You've bought an entity broker, ILS, uh, ILS Brokers. What do those two acquisitions add for you?
0: Well, we're in the security token business. And we're in the cryptocurrency business. Our view is that within the next three to five years, all assets will move on in the blockchain. Now, we went to the New York Stock Exchanges of the World and the NASDAQs, and we said, look, we've got a fully registered security, so digital security we would like to list on your exchanges. And they said, look, you won't be able to list here for three to five years. Three to five years. A lot of things happen in three years. Coinbase went from a 10 billion company to a 100 billion company in a year. And so our view is that digital assets, if they're moving to the blockchain, they need to move somewhere quickly. Now, if you look at the OTC, or they used to be called the pink sheets in the United States. There's 13,000 companies that trade there right now that aren't listed on NASDAQ or New York Exchange. They're listed on the OTC, public companies. Now, the OTC is an ATS just like us, but the OTC is an ATS for legacy assets. Ours is an ATS, alternative trading system, for digital assets. It's my opinion that in the next few years, the majority of these OTC companies will move on to an ATS just like mine that has specific regulatory uh, nuances that allow us to be able to trade these products. At the same time, we'll also have a number of NASDAQ companies move on to our ATS and trade there. And then perhaps we'll apply to be an SRO like a New York Stock Exchange or a NASDAQ. But our view is that New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ will sort of fade into the background as will a lot of legacy finance institutions. And they'll do so because blockchain just changes, not just the game, it changes the whole board.
1: Those 13,000 uh, pink sheets, ATC issuers, which you've, you've mentioned as being ripe for tokenization, why exactly does tokenization appeal to them? Let me ask you
0: a question. What's the CEO's job or the chairman of a public company's job? Is it to maximize the price of their security? I would say that's probably their number one, you know, that's probably in the, in the top three of a little list of this is what your job is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the cost for a hedge fund these days to short a company in the OTC is de minimis. It doesn't cost that much. And so you find maybe three or 4,000 shares, I think, on the OTC that currently have over a 50% short against them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the hedge fund special thing is let's go out there, we'll go long a NASDAQ short uh, stock and go short something that's trading on the OTC. Just makes cost-effective sense. Once one of these companies goes digital, do you know what happens? Well, you can't borrow or rehypothecate a security token. And so the shorts get squeezed out. If you've got a 50% or 80% short against your company, and then that is disappears, what do you think happens to the price of the stock? Now, this isn't financial advice, but I'm guessing that when shorts are squeezed out of something, the price probably rallies. So What's the selling point? The selling point is, are you a little annoyed by the yoke around your neck, the weight of short sellers that are pushing down your stock on a daily, weekly, monthly basis? Are you? Okay, great. Then maybe you should go digital. The next question I'll have is, yeah, but what about liquidity? And then I'll say, well, what's the liquidity you have right now where you are? Because where you are right now reminds me of the Kanye West song where you've got a barrel and crabs trying to climb out of it. And the crabs always try to climb out of it to get onto NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange and they never do. And so if you want to really have a chance to climb out of that barrel, maybe you need to move on to a different ATS.
1: Can I ask you a stupid question? Are you confident that over time that inability to short tokens will persist?
0: Well, I am when you do it on our platform because our platform, you do something called self-custody you don't actually custody it on our exchange. We don't offer that at all. Because our view is that in the next five years, everything's gonna move on to a self-custodian model. Now, what does that mean? Now, for you and I, that sounds strange, right? I keep my money at Fidelity or Morgan Stanley, they look after my my investments. But for the younger generation, they keep everything in their phone. They keep their NFTs on a MetaMask wallet on their phone. They keep their crypto in a wallet on their phone. So why wouldn't they keep their securities on a phone? And if I can build a security that's unstealable, then why would I care about a custodian? I think what we find today in the media is, or in this space is everyone says, well, let's make the blockchain space very much like the legacy space. So we need custodians, we need this, we need that. But if I create a smart contract that makes it such that you can't steal a token or you can't steal a security, then why do you need a custodian? You could store it on your phone and have the same security that you could otherwise. And it's sort of like, the way I describe it is you can build a really strong chicken coop, but if you build a chicken that can't be stolen, who cares about the coop? Mm-hmm. And I think that as we get into security tokens, and as we look at smart contracts, more and more we're finding ways where we can make the security itself unsteal, unstealable. And that's because we use things like whitelisting of wallets. So if you think about, let's say the erc fourteen oh four token, Right now, if you were to lose your wallet that has Bitcoin on it, you've lost your Bitcoin forever. You lose your seed phrases, you've lo- lost your Bitcoin forever. If you lost that wallet and an erc fourteen oh four token was on it, I could revoke the tokens from that wallet and reissue them somewhere else. You haven't lost them. Now, let's say someone was to hack that wallet. They could take your Ethereum, they could take your Bitcoin, but the erc fourteen oh four token, which is what the INX token's on, would look up to the blockchain and say, hold on, the wallet you're sending me to, is that whitelisted? And if it's not whitelisted, it will refuse to move. If it is whitelisted, it'll move into that next wallet. But if it then, in that case, if it's a whitelisted wallet, I know your name, your address, I have your passport number, I've got your utility bill. And so when law enforcement comes knocking, they're gonna come right after you. So I think that there's, there's a lot of safeguards that are getting built today. Now, this is in, this is in use today, and I think it's, in, and you know, this is something that we worked with with the SEC because they said, look, you can lose your Bitcoin in a boating accident, but you can't lose your 401k. And so we've created something there as opposed to building a better mouse trap, we've just built a really strong mouse. And I think that it's going to be very interesting. And this is like, you know, a first iteration. I'm sure in the next year or so, there'll be you know even more security behind security tokens that they're holding internally in their own smart contracts.
1: Now let's talk a bit about, You've, you've, you've talked very animatedly about uh, about the potential in the security token markets. Am I right to think that right now, the bulk of your revenues are coming from the cryptocurrency activities and the security tokens are, are, are the big growth opportunity that you see? Is that a, a reasonable supposition?
0: I would say no. Um, I would say that the bulk of our revenues right now really, well, we don't really have much in revenue because we're still building it as a company. Remember, our IPO was in lieu of going after venture capital or uh, private equity money. So we're a startup, we're a startup company that right now is setting a table. We're setting that table by getting MT licenses. I think we have them now for 25 states we can trade in the United States for crypto. And at the same time, we're also setting the table for the security token business. Now, before we go live with a lot of these things, we need to have many things in place. You know yourself, you're watching television, you're scanning over Twitter and you see an ad for something, you wanna click in there. You wanna join up quickly. You wanna be automated. You don't wanna be waiting a week. At the same time, you wanna be able to send money with a credit card. Now, setting up payment processes, setting up automated uh, ID verification systems take time. And our IPO closed in what, April? And now we're looking at November. So we've had seven months. Give us a couple more months. The table will be set fully. And that's when the magic starts happening. But I I would say that yes, for the first couple of years, I would expect to see, actually, most revenues probably coming from the, the business where we help companies raise money. So that's on the, the broker-dealer side. And then it'll go on the listing side. And cryptocurrency, while cryptocurrency is a big moneymaker today for the Coinbase's, Krakens, and Binance's of the world, remember, it's only a $3 trillion market cap business. Equities is 100 plus trillion. Fixed income, 100 plus trillion. So, as equities and fixed income move on to the blockchain space, it's going to dwarf the activity, excuse me, that we see currently in crypto. How big,
1: you know, is, what, the, how big is the OTC market? You, you mentioned the 13,000 companies, but is there a, a market cap for it as
0: well? I'm sure there is, but I don't have it off the top of my head. But it's considerable. You know, equities is what drives business. When you walk onto Goldman Sachs' floor, Morgan Stanley's, It's not the FX team that's making all the money. It's the guys in equities and it's the guys in investment banking. And FX is seen as sort of a, it's an exhaust mechanism. And yet crypto right now is starting with the exhaust and that's the cryptocurrency trading businesses. And soon it's gonna go into the juggernaut or the engine and that's gonna be equities and fixed income. Mm
1: -hmm. And so when you start tackling this 13,000 company OTC market, how difficult is it going to be to tokenize these OGC stocks? Once you've, you've done it once, you have a process and you can simply repeat that process, or is every one of these going to be sui generis and completely starting from scratch?
0: I've built a factory that essentially a company will come in, they'll do a corporate vote. That vote will then go to their lawyers. Their lawyers will then do a filing. That filing will then do a swap equity for tokens, and then it'll be listed, and there'll be a KYC AML for every single holder. And then it'll be listed on our platform. It's uh, pretty seamless. It's very much a cut and paste uh, business. And it's one that we've uh, thoroughly vetted. So I think it could be rapid, fast, quick. I'm building this not on a bespoke basis, but literally it's a factory.
1: And are they impressed that you've done a security token issue yourselves? So you've kind of put your money where your mouth is, if you like.
0: Well, we've done the issue ourselves, but that was you know a primary offering as opposed to here, we're taking companies that are already public and we'll be making them digital as opposed to legacy. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a different process. Now, when companies want to raise money and do so in our way, for sure, they'll come to us and we'll give them advice and we'll help them with that. And we'll you know consult with them and give them an invest now button that'll go on their website. We'll tell our community about them and let them introduce themselves to our community and, uh, you know, have them uh, then start collecting money and raising money themselves outside of the regular banking system. And we think that that's going to be sort of the future, especially for people that already have a community, you know, think about, I'll I'll give a simple example. You've got a professional footballer, professional footballer's got 3 million fans. that love them. Professional footballer wants to raise money to start up a chain of restaurants. Knows nothing about restaurants. He could go to a private equity backer or venture capital and, you know, get 20% of the business for adding his name to it. Or he could go directly to his fans or her fans and raise the capital from them by sending them to a website where he details how he wants to raise money or she wants to raise money and they send the money in. You know, there's a way where you can then take your community and give them much more than just being fans. You can actually have them be part of the process, part of your business. And it's sort of like that community token. And that's what INX has proven, is that you can create a community token, you can create a community, and then you've got all of these people. Today, we're 7,250 people that bought our our token today, there's 8,100 and something. That's 8,100 odd people that are out there talking about INX, bringing people to my attention that want to list on my platform, and are probably the greatest marketers. And if I just had one or two private equity companies that invested in me, I wouldn't have that. It's an absolute incredible team across multiple states and 74 countries that are talking about INX daily.
1: Are you touched on this. Do you expect tokenization to spread to conventional exchange listed stocks as well? The ones that are on you know, New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ now?
0: Well, you already see that. You, know, you get overstock that right now trades. On a legacy market, and then there's also a tokenized version that trades on T zero. So it's already happened. This isn't reinventing the wheel. What I do see is I see mass delistings from legacy platforms, and then as they move on to um, to blockchain based platforms. But it's going to take you know first it's a trickle, then it's a stream, then it's a river, and then it's an absolute tsunami because it is about liquidity. But you know the first five or six companies that I bring on. Yeah, there won't be that much interest. Then, when it comes fifty, broker dealers will call me and say, "Look, we need to we need to figure out how we can start trading your stocks. So we need to you know, attach into you, so we can do that for our clients." Once it gets to two hundred, the bigger broker dealers are now attaching into us. Once we get to a thousand, two thousand, three thousand, everyone's attaching into us, and then everyone's now trading this. And now there's plenty of liquidity. So it really is you got to start somewhere. Cisco's not going to leave Nasdaq or wherever they're listed and come and list on INX tomorrow, but there's enough liquidity to maybe trade a billion dollars market cap. You've got to build it slowly, but surely, and it takes time. Now in the next two or three years, do I think there could be a thousand or 2000 listings sitting on my platform? Absolutely. But it's not because I'm selling something, it's because I'm talking about something, I've laid the table and the regulators, I believe are going to start hurting companies my way.
1: And the corporate bond markets they have problems of illiquidity are they an attractive
0: market for you to target i think they're interesting but i think they're kind of like reg d issues Mm -hmm. in that they are limited in terms of how folks are interested and i think that you know corporate debt i guess used to have there were different there's been all sorts of names for corporate debt over the years um there's also high yield debt It used to be called junk debt you know, and then there's, there's the, your, your AAA companies that also have debt that's almost akin to being a, a, a treasury note. I think that companies are going to look at doing debt and how it looks on their balance sheet. And they'll think in, in the future, well, maybe I should do a security token instead to raise money. And I give an example. You know, We signed a deal with a company called IPEX. It's Intellectual Property Exchange. Mm-hmm. I think 70% of all of the value of the S&P right now is actually intellectual property, which can give you a valuation on the equity side but on the debt side, there isn't really no violation. In fact, you take your intellectual property because it's intangible to a bank and say, give me a loan against this. The bank says, I'm sorry, it's, it's intangible. Now, let's say I tokenize that intangible asset that has a worth, let's say of 200 million. And I have that back a $100 million loan or debt instrument. And I sell that to investors in my platform. Well, there, I may have Japanese investors that say, I want to buy this, but it's offering 5% a year, this is great, and it's backed by, let's say, Xerox's IP, this is fantastic. Sounds like I've just found a new avenue. And at the same time, there's a possibility that maybe Xerox, by doing this, doesn't have to list this as debt on their balance sheet, because what they're doing is they're doing essentially a collateralized debt obligation to these investors. So there's 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 there are lots of things that we're we're looking into right now but I think that in the future the way that you look at a capital stack is going to be very very different. I mean just look at my balance sheet. Sure I've got equity that's private right now it'll be public quite soon. But I also have a security token that is not seen as debt in my my balance sheet. It's an obligation. So there's going to be some interesting moves on a balance sheet. And this whole thing that we've grown up with, which is there's debt and there's equity, is about to be thrown to to the side where it's debt and there's equity and then there's digital securities.
1: Uh IPEX, I was going to ask you about the partnership you formed with IPEX. As I understand it, IPEX is a trading platform and so are you. How, how how you, how you How are you going to work together in practice?
0: Well, IPEX traditionally has been out there Talking about going to larger institutions, taking their IP, tokenizing it, and then selling it. And I think that as their own exchange, certainly they were able to onboard some folks to be able to do that. But when you're talking about a hundred million or two hundred million or a billion dollar issue, you know you've got to have larger partners. And I think that Inex saw us, well, IPex saw us as a larger partner. We see them as being excellent at sourcing business because look. I know nothing about intellectual property, nothing at all, and I don't even ever plan to be. And so I need to align myself with experts around the world whose passion is to go out there and to create new products, but perhaps what they're not good at is in the listing of those products. So sure, they can attract people that want to invest in them. They can attract people that want to sell them, but I'm the one that's going to end up having the larger audience for people to trade them. So all of us working together creates a nice pipeline for me of intellectual property assets. It creates them an an outlet whereby they can list these these securities, and we can also help them in the raising of capital with them. So it becomes a very symbiotic relationship. And I've done the same sort of thing with real estate as well, where I've got companies out there that, and I must have 10 to 15 real estate projects that come to me a week that want to list in our platform, but they all want to know how do we structure this? And I'm not in the business of structuring real estate transactions, so I pass that to another company that then puts that together for them.
1: That's something you know, I, I can either
0: build myself an investment banking unit, yeah, and it's very expensive. I mean, investment bankers aren't cheap. Or I can outsource a lot of this business to other folks whose that's that's their specialty. And I yeah. think that you're going to find that, like, the, again, this is back to the, the traditional model is. Let's hire 1,000 investment bankers, have 20 in each of these different asset uh, areas and have them span out and start calling CEOs. My view is, well, let me deal with maybe five or six boutiques that all have these connections already and have them do the advisory work, have them work on it, and then have me help them with the raise and then with the listing.
1: Mm-hmm. Structuring is the one thing which is often forgotten uh, by tokenization enthusiasts. Are you seeing the... Um, the classic investment banks taking an interest in structuring these issues or is it being reserved for these specialist firms you've just referred
0: to? I think that investment banks have an interest in anything that they see can, they can make money with. Uh-huh. I think that they can see that, asset, that, that security tokens are going to be the future. They're trying to figure out how they can make it their future. They're also looking at lots of different blockchains. So I have lots of blockchains thrown at me from investment banks. What do you think of this blockchain or that blockchain? I think, I guess, a lot of them are thinking about having their own blockchain um, because there's one thing to create a security token, but then you have to decide what rails. You know, think of a security token as a train. You then have to decide what rails to run that train on, and uh, you can run it on some rails that may be very, very cheap. But there's absolutely no asset trading platform that is integrated with that with those rails. So you know, people have to think about that. I think that we're not at the point yet where the traditional banker at Lazard that's going in to talk to their Fortune 100 company about how to raise money has any clue yet about what a security token is. But the guy that was in the IT department that now is head of the digital blockchain uh, business for the company has a clue but still isn't being invited into these meetings. And so we're a little bit away so far. What I will say is that they'll certainly take notice over the next six months based on some of the things that we're going to be doing. Now, last year, I think Bank of America had 42 IPOs and raised a lot of money for folks. I would like to be able to say that next year, maybe I'll have just as many. And that's going to sort of make people wake up and say, hold on, this guy. And it's like in that movie, there will be blood where you say, I drink your milkshake. I drink it up. That reminds me very much of what's going to happen in that The the legacy financial system does work very, very slowly. And our system, our financial system is working very, very quickly. Um, And so there is a possibility that very, very quickly I could end up doing a lot of IPOs. I could end up doing a lot of listing of companies and it's sort of before they've even figured out that I'm drinking their milkshake.
1: Let's ask ourselves where those 42 plus uh issuers are going to come from you were you were bearish a minute ago about about corporate debt um you mentioned real estate uh, what about privately managed assets privately managed equity private equity if you like privately placed debt collectibles commodities fine art but my piece de resistance would be would be mutual funds or, or etfs are you looking at all these asset classes
0: I am absolutely, and I'd love to discuss them, but I can't. So, yeah, you know, we, we're, we're talking to ESG uh, folks. Um, we're talking to, you know, we'd like to be able to tokenize things like wind power, solar power, uh, carbon credits. There's a lot of things in that space that I think are going to be very, very exciting. I know in Europe, you know, carbon credits are huge and they're about to become so in the United States. I think that's very exciting stuff. I think when it comes to collectibles, you know, we're working with a company called Entoro will be the first place to actually list security security NFTs. So NFTs listed as securities. One of the biggest things you find in NFT right now is everyone loves to talk about it. But when a $50 million piece of art sells between two anonymous wallets um, and the government doesn't know who they were, that's a problem. And it's going to end up being a huge stain when it comes down to money laundering. And so I think that over a certain price, NFTs will start trading over securities platforms like ourselves. Because there we've got the, the AML, we've got the KYC. It's, there, there's going to be a change in that business, and we're preparing for it. I think that NFTs today you think of as being you know, a silly digital photograph of something or, or digital uh, picture. I think that in the future, we'll all have NFTs. You'll have your vaccination certificate would be an NFT, your driver's license, an NFT, your diploma from college, an NFT, your passport, an NFT, and you'll hold it in your wallet on your phone. So NFTs, I think we're in the early stage, which is the kind of like the ICO phase, which is there's all this excitement and craziness, and then regulation comes in and settles things down, and then it starts trading in a regulated manner. And so I think that that's going to happen there. Mm -hmm. With commodities, for sure, I see commodities moving on in the blockchain. I'm talking to some companies that have incredible ideas that, that have a commodity component, but also an ESG component. And I'll give an example. There's gold under the ground right now in beautiful nature. Now, traditionally what would happen is people go in there, they dig up nature, they take the gold out so they can then put it underground somewhere else in a vault. Well, what if you could tokenize that pristine nature backed by the gold that's underneath it, sell that to folks that want to keep that natural preserve in place? That's pretty interesting. And and there's folks that are working on things like that. And I think that's going to be an absolute killer Uh because there's lots of West coast folks that want to invest in things that help the world and help nature. I think we all do. And here's something that you can do where you still own the gold. It just hasn't been mined. And uh, so, you know, there's exciting things that can come with tokenization that today are figments of imagination. And what we're trying to do is take that imagination and make it real. Think of me as Walt Disney.
1: I'll try. Uh, What about international issuers? Are you interested in recruiting people from abroad?
0: You mentioned that your investors come from all over the planet. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there are so many different companies around the world, but it's really up to the issuer to decide. They sit there and say, you know what? There's only one thing we can do here. Uh, We can do something, let's say, that's registered in Liechtenstein or registered in Switzerland or registered in Germany, or we could do something that's registered in the U S like a reg S or a reg D. Um, and we're finding a lot of companies that have traditionally gone that Liechtenstein right or Switzerland right now coming to us and saying, we'd like to list in the U S and I say, well, you know, I can't take, I can't list you if you're listed, if you're registered or you're, the laws you're following are Liechtenstein. only if you register this in some way as an exempt security in the United States. So we're working with a lot of issuers like that, but I also have, you know, there's a lot of companies around the world that understand that, that the true market for securities these days is still the United States. And so they're coming up with some really interesting ideas to be able to list here. You know, I mean, there's this crazy sort of tax considerations too, in that there's some com- com- folks in some countries that pay a lot less tax on a security than they do, let's say, on crypto. So if you can do a security backed by crypto, they'll buy it because it's got a great tax advantage. There's other folks that are banned from buying crypto, but they're allowed to buy securities in some countries. We can offer a security that has crypto attached to it in some way, they're allowed to buy it. The law hasn't changed for them. So there's lots of threading the needle around the world for issuers and for investors that we continue just to find out about you know on a weekly basis
1: it goes without saying that these uh, issuers have to come from non-blacklisted jurisdictions. Uh, and I guess the same applies to to investors. Can we talk a bit about the investors now? Uh, we, we, we've touched on wallets more than once uh, in this conversation. But my understanding is you don't, INX doesn't offer a digital wallet of its own. It's directing investors to uh, a bunch of specialist wallets like MetaMask and Hex and, and others. Now, well,
0: you, can hold, you can hold an INEX token or an ERC-1404 on any wallet you want, as right? long as it can hold an ERC-20 token. Mm-hmm. That's all. As long as it can hold a token. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we're agnostic. We couldn't care. But if you're going to trade in our platform today, <laughs> you have to do so by transferring it to a MetaMask wallet, which then syncs to our platform and then the trades are performed. So that's the only requirement we have. But you can hold it and store it on any wallet you want.
1: I was going to ask a boring regulatory question. Is it, is it the, the wallet providers who are doing the KYC, AML, CFT oh. section screening checks, or do you do them as well? well they,
0: may, they, they may do. But when anyone interacts with our platform or whitelists a wallet, they go through AML, KYC.
1: Uh-huh. So you don't, right. rely on the, you don't rely on the wallet providers to do that work. You do it no. yourselves. No,
0: no, no. I, I don't believe that's even legal. Uh-huh. The regulators provide such that if someone walks into my door, I've done KYC AML with them. Now, it'd be different if someone KYC AML with a wallet and then the wallet was my counterparty, then I would do KYC AML on the wallet. But uh-huh. it doesn't work like that. Wallets don't act as counterparties. Individuals do.
1: Uh-huh. I think I'm right to say you have banned the use of wallets which are held at cryptocurrency exchanges. Is that right?
0: Well, if you were to send an erc fourteen oh four token to your Coinbase Ethereum wallet, it would be lost forever. So we'd have to revoke it and then reissue it to a different wallet. So that warning really came out from us saying, listen, you can't whitelist a wallet at a, another institution because they're not ready to accept ERC-20 or ERC-1404 tokens. And we'll just have to revoke it and reissue it again. So forget about it.
1: Uh-huh. So it's a technical obstacle.
0: There's a technical obstacle there too. Now, but also when we receive funds to our company, We'd like to receive them from your MetaMask wallet because we want the money to come in from a wallet that we know is yours. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you could open up an account today and then have your North Korean friend send the money in, and I wouldn't know. And I need to make sure that it's your money that's coming in.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, as we discussed earlier, investors were able to buy your token uh, using cryptocurrency. Now, is this always a... Uh, a judgment made by the issuer, whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Do you have a lot of investors queuing up who've got wallets stuffed with Bitcoin and Ether who'd like to use them to subscribe to token issues? Or is that just the issuer decides and if it's
0: possible, people have that option? I would say there are millions of people out there that bought Bitcoin at prices that you and I would scoff at uh, that now have a tremendous amount of capital. And they're looking for ways to diversify that capital and to them diversifying into a security token offering which is different from an ico in that it's got the sec sort of like registration if you do something wrong with the security token offering guess what you go to jail um so there's consequences so it seems like it's a little bit better of an alternative than just throwing darts at a board and these guys i think want to invest in quality project projects and uh, and ideas mm-hmm. and so there's a tremendous market out there of folks that have crypto that want to invest in. Now, certainly it's an issuer's, idea. it's up to the issuer, but even, even on a processing basis, when someone sends a wire, let's say from Revolut, well, the name isn't on it when it arises in from Revolut to your bank. And so the issuer has to look at their bank account and try to guess whose money that is that came in on that wire transfer. So they can then assign tokens. I mean, that's very inefficient and it takes five days. When someone sends Bitcoin, you know immediately who it was that sent that to you, and you can immediately send out the tokens. So, it's, again, it's a matter of, do you want to go with the efficiency, which is where USDC, Bitcoin, and Ethereum come in, or do you want to go with sort of legacy, which just creates more long, uh, issue, long-term issues, and well, frankly, it's just a pain. Mm-hmm. The issue is one, cryptocurrency. I think issuers want capital coming from wherever they can, but given that the issuer can take Bitcoin or Ethereum and then immediately transfer it and make it into dollars means that they're agnostic. Mm-hmm. They want to take in capital any way they can. Yeah. Let's say, let's say, forget about issuers. Let's say you're a charity. You're a charity that only takes in money, uh, uh, wire transfers. You probably don't get that much business. Then you say, you know what? We'll add credit cards. You get a little bit more money coming in. Then you add Bitcoin, Ethereum, USDC, and you get more. The more different payment options you add as an issuer, obviously, the more pathways to to having investment you open up.
1: Now, uh, back, back to the the investors. It, this question may be premature, but you referred to these people who bought Bitcoin or Ether at, at prices which uh, look very attractive now. So they've suddenly got a lot of capital. They're looking to to diversify it. Is that is the investor base you expect to develop going to be primarily institutional or is it going to be primarily those retail style investors who happen to
0: have got in early on on cryptocurrencies or is it a mixture of both? Well it's a mixture I mean if you, like uh, the average age at our IPO was 42 years old it's a lot older skew than I thought it would be and it was evenly matched from 30 all the way up to you know, to 40, to 50, it was really pretty much 20%, you know, below 30, 20%, 30 to 40, 20%, 40 to 50, however it goes, but it's very even, plus or minus two or three percentage points, which tells me that it's not just a young man's game or a young woman's game. It, it, this is gonna be something that's gonna be for everyone. And if, if you have enough of an interest in something, people will sign up. Now, how do I get a 52-year-old man to open up a MetaMask wallet for the first time? Well, that's easy. I give them something that they want. Or I buy Taylor, Taylor Swift's Music Catalog, I tokenize that, and then I say, I'm going to list it. And then every 52-year-old who's got a daughter is going to have him screaming in his ear saying, you better open up an account. I want to buy this. And you'll figure it out really quickly. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of like when the VCR came in. At first, I'm sure our parents would have looked at that and said, oh, I don't know this technology. I can't figure it out. And now, you know, they're using it like, like, like they, any new technology comes along, everyone pooh poos it and says it's too hard. And then the UI gets improved and everyone starts to use it. And that's where we are with this game. It's about the UI is in early stages. Once the UI, the user interface in, increases and improves, everyone's going to be doing it.
1: You said you were, you were surprised that the demographic that invested in your token, the average age being 42, was older than you thought. Do you think that tokens are going to appeal to an older, richer demographic by comparison
0: with cryptocurrency? Well, I think that cryptocurrencies appealed to a poor demographic once when they started, but now that demographic's extremely wealthy and makes the rest of us look like paupers. Mm. So I don't think there's such a thing as a poor demographic in crypto anymore. I think of it as being a open-minded demographic as opposed to rich or poor. I think that as we move more securities onto the blockchain, then obviously the demographics are going to change and the traditional investor will start moving to the blockchain along with the assets they like to invest in. Currently, assets that traditional investors want to invest in are not on the blockchain, so they have no interest. They don't even know about it. But uh, you know, as we move more assets onto the blockchain, they will have to learn about it and know about it because that's where what they want to invest in are located.
1: I I can believe to some extent this becomes self-fulfilling, kind of network effects set in and the more assets you're able to offer, the more investors you attract and so on. But of course, a market has to be built, just like the issues have to be structured. Is there something specific you can be doing, or those of us who think that that tokenization is a good idea, should be doing to actually recruit investors uh, to the security token markets? And what sort of specific
0: things can you actually do? The the easiest way to recruit investors to a market is to list things that people can't believe are actually gonna get listed. So if I list a tiny little company no one's ever heard of, I'll attract a thousand people. If I list something that is a brand name that millions of people around the world know about, hundreds of millions use, I think we're gonna attract a lot of investors. And I pick the latter. I'm gonna be listing things that people can't believe are gonna get listed. So I'm gonna be attracting things. The only way you attract people in this type of business, Well, there's two ways. There's push and pull. You can pull them in by doing advertising. It costs a lot of money to get people in. Or you can pull them in. You can pull them in by having really, really cool listings. And I want to have the coolest listings that attract the most people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How does a magazine attract readers? It puts something really good on the cover. How is INEX going to attract investors or attract people to come onto our platform and onboard? I'm going to list really cool things and put them on my front page.
1: Now, one of the things investors want, of course, is, is liquidity. And you mentioned that one of the benefits to the pink sheets uh, issue is, is going to be that tokenization will actually add liquidity for them. But tokenization isn't going to just of itself uh, create liquidity, except to a marginal extent, perhaps. Do you, do you think that the market needs market makers, lead brokers, people who, offer to make prices to actually bring liquidity to the market?
0: Well, we're finding right now that you don't. So we don't have market makers for the INX token. Still trades just, just shy of $5 million a month. That's not bad for given the, the, the size of our raise. Mm-hmm. I think that it really depends on how, how interested the, um, the, the, the investor class is. Now, yes, there are requirements for market makers on NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. It does really well for the market makers. Um, you know these guys are minting hand over fist, but they're minting hand over fist at the cost of the investor. So again, you're looking at something legacy that I'm saying maybe isn't needed anymore.
1: So how important do you think fractionalization is in terms of attracting investors? I, I sometimes Huge. think so, you know, we can, well we can fractionalize things now. We just can't fractionalize them down to very small pieces, can we? Is that the difference that you can get down to very small amounts and it's still operationally, administratively makes economic sense to be selling pieces that small? Is that,
0: is that what oh, fractionalization does? Define that small. Berkshire Hathaway has an extremely large share price. Mm-hmm. Not everyone can buy one share. One thousandth of a share of Berkshire Hathaway is still extremely expensive. One one hundredth thousand is still very, very expensive. So, yeah, you're, you're right in that if you've got a $3 share, having fractional ownership of that, is that really a big deal? Probably not. But there's a lot of shares that aren't priced at $3 that trade in the market. But not just that. Let's say you're international. Let's say you're in India. Maybe India, you make $15 a year. I'm sorry, a month or a week. Well, you can't afford to buy one U.S. share, but you could afford to buy a fraction of that. So by adding, adding fractionalization, you really are democratizing the ability for people around the world to be able to invest in things that otherwise they couldn't. When you throw that into 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, you're just adding more and more time to people and, and allowing them the ability to be able to trade.
1: Mm-hmm. The technology matters, doesn't it, in, in terms of making that economic to sell small fractions of a, an asset to in your example, the worker in India? Because if there are, the reason people have these thresholds is because economically up to now hasn't made sense to...
0: The reason that Berkshire Hathaway trades at a gazillion dollars is not because of an economic view, it's because they just want to have institutional investors rather than retail. Mm-hmm. And that's the real reason why we don't have fractionalization, but also because the technology can't handle it. Maybe we can handle four decimal places, but not 18. As most crypto uh, places, yep. do. in fact, the guy is talking is eighteen decimal places. Yep. It's sort of like the Y two K problem. You know, we're dealing with financial markets that were built back a hundred odd years ago that can't handle the way things are moving today. And uh, you know, it's just you know we get used to something and we say, "Oh, this is how it should be," without understanding that maybe things could be different.
1: Now, your own um, uh, security token IPOs attracted international investors going forward. This is going to be a big part of huge. What you'll be looking to do for all issuers, right?
0: Absolutely. I think it's huge. You know, international investors add so much to any company. If you want to be global, you've got to have international investors. You know, I, There's telegram channels devoted to my company pretty much in every continent and folks talking about us in every continent and folks talking about it in every state. Again, this is a huge marketing coup for us because it really helps us get our word out all around the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's very, very important. Now, if you're raising money locally and you're doing a reg CF, a a crowd fund, being international doesn't mean anything. But if you're doing a company, then you want to have your name out there and name global, then absolutely the international investor is very, very important. Mm
1: -hmm. I'd like to talk a bit um, finally just about the about the infrastructure of, uh, of the market, if you like. You mentioned earlier that you're looking to work with specialists in different fields, for example, in structuring issues. You want you don't want to set up an investment banking function of your own. But when it comes to actually operating this market, by which I mean you're issuing uh, the tokens into the wallets and then trades are taking place between these wallets, the, the, the assets are being safe kept in wallets, they're being settled. Um, payments, entitlements, in your example, your 40% of profits are being sent to the the token holders, for example. Are you you doing all those functions yourselves at INX? Yes. Do
0: you think that creates conflicts of interest for you or not? Where's the conflict of interest in printing a token and delivering it?
1: Well, people might say a conflict of interest, I suppose, between they'd like the custody to be independent, for example,
0: Custody is independent. We don't, do any, we don't do any custody of anyone's, uh, again, it's self custody. You custody it yourself in your own wallet. So we don't do custody. You can pick whichever custodian you want to.
1: Okay. So when it comes
0: down to the minting of wallet, which is really something that's, that's uh, it's, it's a commodity in essence, and that anyone could do it, but we do it in a regulated way. So that's probably important to people if they want to do a, an asset in the United States. We print it and then we do the delivery of the token into a wallet, which is really a, a keystroke. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing there that sort of is, we, can, we think we could do it at a better price somewhere else. I think that you are going to say, well, actually that's not the case. That's like asking Morgan Stanley why they use FedEx to send a package. Well, they do it because it's the most efficient way.
1: Mm-hmm. Our
0: view is that we want to do nose to tail for an, for an issuer so they don't have to deal with five different people. And given that it's all technology these days, it would be absolutely silly to go out there and have one guy do one thing, another guy do another, when you could just press the button on one system and it does it all. Who does the asset servicing? You do that, by which I mean the payment of the income, for example. Any payment, let's say there was a dividend that was going to be sent out, would be sent out by the transfer agent. But uh-huh. you have to have, because that's what the law says. That's correct. I have to have, INX needs to have a transfer agent. That's what the law says.
1: Uh-huh. And to be clear what you mean by transfer agent here, the, 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 the organization which maintains the register of, of who owns the tokens, which in this case, which in the normal security markets would be DTCC, right?
0: That's correct, but in, well, DTCC is one of them, mm-hmm. but I'd say that in the digital asset space, you know, they're, they're, the issuer, first of all, knows at all moments in time, who is their cap table, who owns what where and what, what wallets they are and who, who owns those wallets. Mm -hmm. I could probably do it myself, but I'd probably go to the transfer agent because they have the technology there to actually send it. Coca-Cola doesn't have a technology to send out dividends. Instead, Mm -hmm. they go to their transfer agent and says, we want to send out the dividends. Same as us, except when the transfer agent sends out dividends in legacy space, they go to the commercial bank and say, we'd like to deliver this to this person's wallet. With us, the transfer agent sends it directly into someone's wallet. There's no commercial bank involved. Mm
1: -hmm. Isn't part of the attraction of the future here for the likes of Coca-Cola that they would actually be able to see their shareholders, if you like, in real time, directly, they could communicate with them directly, they could send them money entitlements
0: directly. Isn't that part of where we're going? For for sure we're going there. But also where we're going is, how many companies have a hedge fund sneak up on them or a real money fund sneak up on them and buy 5% of their stock? And they don't know about it until a month later when it's Mm self-reported. With this, with security tokens, you can't sneak up on someone. You can actually watch in live time as people are buying your stock or buying your tokens. Mm-hmm. So it changes the game for hedge funds too.
1: What happens to, to the central securities depository like DTCC in this fully evolved security token market? Sounds to really me like the things they do, the, the issuance, the registration, the settlement are kind of redundant. That in the way that they do them going forward. Is that, is what, that-
0: happened, what happened to blacksmiths when Henry Ford came along?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Who cares? Okay. who cares? Yeah. You know, people, people say, like, when you have a new technology that comes along that replaces the old technology, you know, they didn't turn around to Henry Ford and say, are you going to buy all the blacksmiths now as a hedge? No. He just builds his car and moves on and the blacksmiths start selling tires. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's where this market could go. It could go whereby it costs too much to refit your system to become blockchain compatible, and so you just fold.
1: Mm-hmm. And does the same go for custodian banks as goes for DTCC? Do they have a role to play in these tokenized markets?
0: I think the custodians will still be in, we're doing what they're doing for the next 10, 15 years for sure, because it takes a long time to get a real money fund to change, mm-hmm. uh, change direction very very long time you're talking about trillions of capital Mm -hmm. and so it's going to take them very very long time to turn but it's going to happen first with the family offices and they'll say you know we don't need this then it moves on to sort of the leverage hedge funds and then it moves on to the 40 act funds so Mm -hmm. you know there's a process when it comes to to custodians but once someone creates that chicken that can't be stolen you won't need a chicken coop
1: Mm -hmm. i don't know this but i suspect the uh for those institutional money funds, I suspect the regulation has to change too, so that they don't have to use a conventional qualified custodian.
0: Well, probably, yes. And, and right now, that is a big deal in that you need to have that qualified custodian. And there isn't one for digital securities. There are plenty right now for Bitcoin, but there aren't any for digital securities, which causes a bit of an issue for That's surprising.
1: I, I'm surprised that the, the the traditional global custodians haven't been more aggressive in wanting to get into customers. Well,
0: there's, a, there's only one security token that's a registered security, that's ours. Mm-hmm. So until there's 500 or a 1,000, why is anyone going to ever look at it? But not just that, Alliance Bernstein, who would need a qualified custodian, can't invest in a, in a security token today because when you look, they have to only invest in things that are on their prospectus, which is equity, debt, currencies, commodities, but not digital securities. Mm-hmm. So they need to add it to their prospectus before they even start thinking about custody.
1: What happens to the conventional exchanges, the NASDAQs and the NICs here? Yeah, you you mentioned earlier, I think, they sort of fade away or fade into becoming broking houses or something. Oh. What do you the think New- happens
0: to them? The New York Stock Exchange today is a media organization. You know, if you go on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, you go there to get filmed and do interviews. Mm-hmm. Very little trading that happens. I mean, you know, during COVID, you don't even need the New York Stock Exchange to be there because it's all electronic. I think that they'll adapt, they'll end up, and they already are, they bought Bakkt and you know, Bakkt is a, a, a blockchain-based uh, company for trading of, uh, of futures. And I think that they'll start moving into the spaces and at some point, maybe they'll look at someone like us or maybe we'll look at someone like them, but you know, it's, it's up in the air of where exchanges as they are today are going to be in the future, you know, but they've got to certainly adapt and move with blockchain or they'll get eaten.
1: Mm -hmm. I guess the reason that they're going to get eaten and they're going to fade or fade away is is because it's going to be cheaper to raise capital uh, issuing tokens than it is issuing securities. It's also going to be cheaper to trade tokens than it is to trade securities. And those intermediaries that are extracting um, rents from the way things are done today are going to find those rents aren't there anymore. Have you projected at all how you think the, the cost of capital will change or the cost of trading will fall in a fully tokenized well, market?
0: Look, look at well, look at DeFi versus let's say that the current marketplace. Currently, I give money to Bank of America, I get 0.25% on it. They lend it out to someone that's got a credit card, they get 17%. They pick up the difference. On DeFi, I give money and I get back 10%. Now is all of that, is the difference between that 10% in DeFi and that 17% with Bank of America, is that difference based upon, well, that you got to pay for regulation? Well, you got to pay for regulation. You got to pay for uh, bricks, mortar, employees. There's a whole bunch of things you have to pay for with a bank that you don't have to pay for when you're just going on a pure technology front. And I think that there is going to be significant changes. You know, when you don't need all, I'll give an example, like at Morgan Stanley, we had 220 people on our team at, in foreign exchange that made a billion dollars, but only 20 of these people were really front office. 200 people were in the back office looking over accounts, Nostro accounts, bank accounts to make sure that currencies settled there. Mm-hmm. When Morgan Stanley moves to digital and you're just trading digital um, currencies like the GN that we, we, we currently trade on our platform. Well, you don't need all of these people looking after bank accounts because they're re- replaced by just one electronic wallet. And that's where things are going in that there's a huge amount of back office staff that are just going to get mitigated out of this business. Mm
1: -hmm. And how are you going to get paid? You taking transaction fees, issuance fees? What's the, what's the commercial model for INX?
0: Yeah. Every time someone does a transaction, we take a fee. And then at the same time, if we help someone raise money, we take a fee and that's really it. You know, it's, it's, if if there's no business being done, there's no money being made by us. Mm -hmm.
1: Can I just a, a last couple of questions? Um, one is that, that INX chose to, to base itself in Gibraltar back in, in 2017. We've touched on, on regulation that's kind of behind the curve a bit here a number of times in this, in this conversation. Was the attraction of Gibraltar that they've put in place um, a, a structure of, of supervision and, and, and regulation, perhaps even of law, that makes it easier to do what you're trying to do now? Was that the attraction
0: or not? At the end of two thousand seventeen, early two thousand eighteen, we asked Ernst and Young where's the best place to domicile. Um, the choices were Seychelles or Gibraltar because they were the only ones that actually had any laws to do with security tokens. We picked Gibraltar.
1: All right, very understandably. Just a, a, a final question as we as we look forward into the future, and you, you've made clear that this is going to be not an instantaneous process, but quite a prolonged one. So, are the public and the private securities markets as we know them today, are they going to migrate in total to a tokenized future? Whatever timescale that takes, is that the future towards which we are going? Are the arguments so strong that the traditional securities markets, if you like, are going to disappear and they're going to be replaced at some point by tokenized markets? Is that your
0: The public market, absolutely. 100% will move on to the digital sphere, to the to the blockchain. Private markets, you know, private markets have been in the, the private space for a very, very long time. It's not in everyone's interest to be listed on, on, a, on the blockchain. It is for some people that want liquidity, but not every private company wants liquidity, not every private company wants everyone knowing their business. So I think that private companies will be slower to move on to the blockchain, but public companies will be forced to by regulators.
1: Douglas mm-hmm. Borthwick, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us.